Welcome to Jury Duty. I'm your host, Carrie Antholis. Season 7 of Jury Duty focuses on two sexual assault trials, the trials of Harvey Weinstein and Danny Masterson, that are currently taking place at the same time on the same floor of the Clara Shortridge Fultz Criminal Courts building in downtown Los Angeles. Two times per week, on Mondays and Thursdays, you will hear episodes with reports from journalists who are in the courtrooms as these trials are happening. Last week, we began the season with our correspondents Molly Miller and Brittany Bookbinder bringing us up to date on all of the pretrial activity in both cases. On today's installment, we hear about the early days of each trial. That's all coming up right after the break. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. We begin today's episode with Brittany Bookbinder and her examination of the jury selection process, the opening statements, and the first witness testimony in the Los Angeles trial of Danny Masterson. In this episode, I'm going to lay out the events of the criminal trial of Danny Masterson through midday on Monday, October 24th. That afternoon, the people called Jane Doe 3. We'll cover Jane Doe 3's testimony in our next episode. For now, we're going to go back all the way to Tuesday, October 11th. As with the Weinstein trial, jury selection in the trial of Danny Masterson began with three consecutive days of 75 potential jurors filling out a written questionnaire. In a pre-trial hearing before jury selection, the defense proposed a 13-page questionnaire that went into depth about Scientology. But Judge Olmedo limited the questionnaire to simply get a sense of what, if anything, the potential jurors knew about the Church of Scientology. By Monday, October 17th, the initial jury pool of 225 had been narrowed down to about 85. Judge Olmedo questioned potential jurors about their written answers. In some cases, she asked about an incident they had noted on their questionnaire, which may have had to do with a prior sexual assault involving themselves or a loved one, or an interaction with the police. Her questioning essentially boiled down to one thing, whether the person, no matter their experiences, could judge the evidence fairly. For those who had indicated that they had some prior knowledge of Scientology, she asked what they knew. Many answered that they were merely familiar with the word, or that they were aware that Tom Cruise is a Scientologist. Some had seen Leah Remini's docuseries, or the HBO documentary, Going Clear. In one case, a man indicated that he knew several Scientologists, some of whom had left the church. He said that he had a negative view of the organization and would not be able to judge the evidence fairly. During a brief voir dire, the attorneys on both sides questioned potential jurors, eventually landing on 12 jurors and 7 alternates. So far, there has been one change to the makeup of the jury. On October 20th, day 7 of the trial, juror number 3, a petite woman with dark hair, sent a note to the court asking to be excused, quote, for a variety of reasons that are giving her anxiety, end quote. Both sides agreed to excuse the juror. She was replaced at random by an alternate a woman who appears to be in her 20s with blonde streaked hair and several tattoos. At present, the jury includes seven women and five men. It's a diverse group ranging in age from 20s to 70s. Opening statements began on Tuesday, October 18th. 
Deputy District Attorney Reinhold Mueller, who looked dignified in a black suit that offset his short silver hair, delivered in his soft-spoken manner the opening for the prosecution. He indicated that, first and foremost, this case would be about three separate counts of forcible rape. Then he said, this case will also be about certain policies that each of these alleged victims understood they needed to follow, referring to Scientology. Over about two hours and 15 minutes, he detailed the allegations of rape by Jane Doe 1, 2, and 3. These incidents, which we covered in episode 1 of the season, date back to 2001 and 2003. In the case of Jane Doe 1 and Jane Doe 3, who both reported the incidents to officials within the Church of Scientology, Mueller explained that church officials told the women that the incidents didn't constitute rape and that, in accordance with church doctrine, they must not report the incidents to the authorities. With only minutes remaining before the morning session concluded, Philip Cohen, a bulldog of a man in a flashy blue and gray checkered suit, stood up for the defense. He delivered a brief highlight of his argument before the jury left for lunch. In the afternoon, Cohen gave his opening statement in full. With the visual aid of a PowerPoint slide containing a word cloud with words and phrases like Scientology and bad guy, he insisted that Scientology is merely a red herring, or rather, the, quote, elephant in the room, end quote. Instead, Cohen said, this case is about three nights 20 years ago. It's, quote, about what you believe has been proven about those three nights, end quote. He then detailed how the victims had been in contact throughout the investigation, even though they were warned by LAPD detectives not to communicate, or they would, quote, contaminate the case, end quote. He then went through the specific elements of the Jane Doe's stories that have changed over time. He indicated that there is no evidence outside of their narrative, no medical evidence, no photographic evidence, no voicemail evidence. Toward the end of his presentation, he pulled up the word cloud slide once more. As he reiterated that this, quote, other stuff, end quote, was the elephant in the room, a cartoon elephant flew into the slide, giving shape to the word cloud. When he concluded, the prosecution called their first witness. Jane Doe 1 entered the courtroom in a long floral dress and light blue cardigan and took the stand. She was questioned by Deputy D.A. Mueller. During direct examination, which continued into the following day, Jane Doe 1 explained two incidents involving Masterson. The second incident, which took place in April of 2003, is a count in this case. Six months earlier, in September of 2002, there was another incident involving Masterson. Here's a brief summary of that incident. In September of 2002, Jane Doe 1 attended an event with several friends from Scientology. Afterward, the group went to a bar, and Danny Masterson bought Jane Doe 1 two drinks. Her friend, Bree Schaefer, who was Masterson's personal assistant, had arranged for Jane Doe 1 to stay the night in Masterson's guest room. At around 2 a.m., Masterson drove Jane Doe 1 to his house. She testified that she was inebriated. She broke her heel on the stairs leading up to his house. She was laughing. Once inside the house, Jane Doe 1 testified that she and Masterson ended up in Masterson's bedroom. She was confused and asking what was happening, but continued to find the situation funny. Masterson and Jane Doe 1 had sex. Later, she woke up to Masterson penetrating her anally, which caused her a great deal of pain. She screamed no, and he stopped. Soon after, Jane Doe 1 told several friends within the Church of Scientology about the incident, including Lisa Marie Presley. As a result, the church required her to complete an ethics course over several weeks. We described the incident that constitutes a count in this case in our last episode. To briefly summarize that incident, Jane Doe 3 went to Masterson's house in April of 2003 to retrieve a set of keys. Masterson made her a drink, and within 20 minutes, she felt weak and dizzy. Masterson threw her in his backyard jacuzzi, carried her upstairs, and allegedly raped her. At one point during the incident, Masterson brandished a gun. 
During her testimony, Jane Doe 3 described this incident at length, although her memory of the incident exists only in flashes. She testified that Masterson dragged her through the house and carried her up the stairs to the backyard. He gave her 15 seconds to get anything off that she didn't want to get wet before throwing her into the jacuzzi. She said there were two other women in the jacuzzi, but she couldn't make out what they were saying. She testified that Luke Watson helped her to get out of the jacuzzi when she couldn't lift herself. By that point, she testified she couldn't see, she couldn't breathe, and she felt a strong urge to vomit. She testified that Masterson indicated that he was going to stick his fingers into her mouth to help her vomit. She testified that after she vomited, Masterson dragged her into the shower, where she sat with her back against the wall. She testified that he raped her on his bed. At one point, she testified that she tried to push him off with a pillow, and he pushed back, smothering her. She testified that, at another point, he grabbed her throat and squeezed hard, and she feared that she was going to die. She testified that when she heard yelling outside the door, she reached into the nightstand and saw Masterson's pistol. She testified that he slammed the drawer shut on her hand, and then he held the gun toward her, though it was not pointed directly at her face. She testified that when she woke up later that night and Masterson wasn't in the room, she crawled into a closet and hid behind the shirts. She testified that when she woke up and it was light, she crawled out. Masterson, who was in the room at that point, yelled at her and demanded that she go to bed. She testified that she woke up in his bed. She testified that Masterson was not there. Immediately following that incident, Jane Doe 1 testified that she got on a plane with her family for a week-long trip. At some point during that trip, she testified that bruising developed on her body. Mueller entered two photographs into evidence, one of Jane Doe 1 wearing a bikini, holding a cup of coffee, and smiling. The other was a photo of Jane Doe 1 with her cousin Rachel, both in bikinis. Mueller asked Jane Doe 1 to point out, using a pointer, the bruising on her body. She pointed to slightly darkened areas on her arms and hips. However, from the back of the gallery, these areas were not immediately visible as bruising. When Jane Doe 1 returned to Los Angeles, she told a friend, another Scientologist, Sean Fabos, about the incident. She testified that he became emotional, and she begged him not to take action. Immediately after that conversation, she reported the incident to the Church of Scientology. She understood that she was not permitted to report the incident to authorities, otherwise she would be expelled from the church and declared a suppressive person. During direct examination, Mueller questioned Jane Doe 1 about her understanding of some of the principles of Scientology. She explained that it was, quote, frowned upon to fraternize with the enemy, end quote, meaning people who were not Scientologists, or as she called them, wogs. Cohen objected to the use of that word. Later, when the jury was out of the room, he asked for a mistrial. His request was denied. During cross-examination, which lasted all of Thursday and into Friday, Cohen spent a long time asking Jane Doe 1 about the details of both incidents. He sought to impeach her testimony by bringing up prior statements to law enforcement. In some instances, the court limited Cohen's questioning when it related to how Jane Doe 1 was dressed or her habits related to drinking alcohol. When the jury was out of the room, Cohen brought up the implied allegation that Masterson drugged the women and declared that there was no evidence of that ever happening. Perhaps the most notable moment of cross-examination related to the photos of Jane Doe 1 from the trip to Florida. He asked her if she was in pain at this time. She said yes. He asked if these were the photos that she had said at one point had, quote, shocked her parents. The prosecution objected. Jane Doe 1 testified that she never provided any additional photographs to the LAPD. On redirect, Mueller entered into evidence a report signed by Jane Doe 1 that she presented to the LAPD when she came forward in 2016. The report is called a Knowledge Report, an official Scientology document that detailed Jane Doe 1's account of the incident with Masterson. She testified that she wrote this report in the office of Scientology Ethics Officer Julian Swartz, 
and that she was instructed not to include any, quote, human emotion or reaction, end quote. Presumably, this was meant to explain some of the inconsistencies in her statements. When Cohen stood up again for recross, he asked her about the report, and specifically about her earlier testimony about waking up alone. The report states that when she woke up in the afternoon, Masterson was in bed with her. She then reread the report and recalled that Masterson was not in bed, but that he was in the room. She said Masterson woke her up and they had a conversation. Cohen asked if she only just remembered that detail by reading the report. She said yes. It was 20 years ago, she said. Cohen immediately pounced on this, saying, quote, it is 20 years later, and it is hard to remember what happened in that room, end quote. Jane Doe 1 fired back, quote, no, that isn't rape, that isn't violence, that is a detail, end quote. At the end of the day, on Friday, October 21st, Jane Doe 1 was dismissed. The prosecution next called Sean Fabos, the friend of Jane Doe 1, who she spoke to about the incident days after it happened at a coffee shop. Deputy DA Mueller took him through that conversation, asking about some of the statements that Jane Doe 1 made to him. He did not remember some of the details that were in the transcript and was evasive in his answers, so much so that Judge Olmedo ruled him to be an adverse witness. It came out during direct examination that, within the last two years, Fabos has become more involved in Scientology. Regarding the last two years, Fabos said, quote, that's when I became a real Scientologist, end quote. It also came out during direct examination that Fabos had remembered, mere days before taking the stand, that he had actually been on that trip to Florida with Jane Doe 1 and her family. He said that this memory came about after he was approached in the hallway outside the courtroom by a private investigator for Masterson. Curiously, a recorded phone call with Jane Doe 1, in which the Florida trip was discussed, which Fabos had listened back to just prior to speaking with Masterson's PI, did nothing to trigger that memory. Fabos claimed that he did not witness any bruising on Jane Doe 1's body during or after that trip to Florida. Defense attorney Karen Goldstein then conducted cross-examination. Fabos testified on cross that Jane Doe 1 never mentioned waking up next to Masterson and that she never mentioned anything about a gun. The people's next witness was Jane Doe 1's cousin, Rachel D. Deputy DA Ariel Anson conducted direct examination. She asked Rachel about the bruising, and Rachel testified that she witnessed bruising on Jane Doe 1's arms and hips. Anson pulled up the photographs of Jane Doe 1, the ones where she's wearing a bathing suit. In what appeared to be an important win for the prosecution, Rachel testified that the bruising appeared darker in person. Rachel also testified to talking with Jane Doe 1 about the incident while they were on the trip. Notably, Rachel testified that Sean Fabos was not on the trip to Florida. On cross-examination, Cohen questioned Rachel about her relationship with Jane Doe 1, implying that her closeness with her cousin might cause her to testify in a way that would be favorable to her case. He asked her whether Jane Doe 1 was candid with her, even though Rachel D. herself was not a Scientologist. It would seem that his question was meant to impeach Jane Doe 1's earlier assertion that relationships with non-Scientologists were frowned upon. Finally, Cohen pulled up the photographs again and asked Rachel D. if Jane Doe 1 appeared sullen, which is how Rachel described Jane Doe 1's demeanor on the trip. She said no. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. 
And now with a breakdown of the opening statements and early witness testimony before a jury of nine men and three women in the trial of Harvey Weinstein, here is Molly Miller. Opening statements in the trial of Harvey Weinstein began on Monday, October 24th. Reporters gathered as early as 6 a.m. outside the courthouse to ensure a seat in the gallery and sprawled in the hallways with laptops tethered to electrical outlets as they awaited the 9.30 a.m. start time. Before the jury's arrival, the gallery filled with journalists, sketch artists, and lawyers representing the Jane Doe's, including Gloria Allred, famed victim's rights attorney. Harvey Weinstein was brought into the court in a wheelchair and struggled to lift himself into his seat at the counsel's table. The former Hollywood mogul asked his attorney, Mark Worksman, who's here, and then peered into the crowd behind him. Deputy District Attorney Paul Thompson addressed the jury on behalf of the people. He wore a black cloth mask and delivered his opening statement in a deliberate, even tone. The DDA opened his presentation with a series of quotations from Weinstein's alleged victims, which appeared on screen in an elegant PowerPoint. They included the following, quote, he was masturbating. He started putting his hand down my shirt underneath my bra, end quote. Quote, I told him to stop. I told him to leave the bathroom and he didn't, end quote. Quote, I was scared that if I didn't play nice, something could happen in the room or out of the room because of his power in the industry, end quote. Thompson noted that seven of the women who will testify did not report their sexual assaults until after the scandal against Weinstein broke in 2017. However, all of them told friends or family members about the incidents. The one woman who did report her assault prior to the height of the Me Too movement was Ombra B, an Italian model and actress. Ombra met Weinstein in Manhattan in 2015 and alleges that Weinstein groped her breasts during a business meeting in his office. She immediately went to the police and reported the incident. In response, the NYPD set up a sting operation. Ombra B met with Weinstein again, but this time wearing a concealed recording device. During their interaction, she attempted to elicit an admission from the high-powered producer that he had inappropriately touched her. Thompson played part of the recording for the jury. In the tape, Weinstein describes how Ambra B's breast felt. He tries to get her to come up to his room with him. He says, quote, I will mentor you and teach you, whatever, but you have to, you know, relax with me, have fun, enjoy, end quote. He later pleads, quote, don't ruin your friendship with me for five minutes, end quote. After the incident, Weinstein was arrested, but was never charged by the New York DA. Ombra B will testify as a prior bad acts witness in this trial. Thompson then dove into the allegations from the Jane Doe's in this case, starting with Jane Doe 4, who has stated publicly that she is Jennifer Seibel Newsom, California Governor Gavin Newsom's wife. Seibel Newsom claims she met Weinstein 17 years ago at the Toronto Film Festival and was invited to meet with Weinstein at his hotel to discuss her career. Instead of meeting in the hotel bar, she was escorted up to his room where he allegedly raped her. Jennifer Seibel Newsom was not married to Gavin Newsom at the time. Next, Thompson discussed the allegations from Jane Doe 1, an actress and model who says that Weinstein raped her in an upscale hotel in February of 2013. 
Jane Doe II, a model and aspiring screenwriter, alleges that Weinstein also sexually assaulted her in February of 2013, just one day after he raped Jane Doe I. Jane Doe III is the celebrity masseuse who alleges that Weinstein groped her breast and masturbated in front of her. Thompson noted that Harvey Weinstein has unique genitalia and that many of the Jane Doe's will be able to describe his anatomy for the jury, although none of the descriptions will be perfect. He closed his presentation with a straightforward chronology of Weinstein's alleged assaults. When Harvey Weinstein's attorney Mark Worksman rose for opening statements, he launched into a boisterous defense of his client. Worksman told the jury that the DDA's case was based on emotion rather than facts and quantity over quality. He blamed the Me Too movement for the allegations against Weinstein, stating, quote, An asteroid called the Me Too movement hit Earth with such ferocity that everything changed overnight, and Mr. Weinstein became the epicenter of the Me Too movement, end quote. Later, Worksman told the jury that the Me Too movement turned Weinstein into a Hollywood Chernobyl. In Worksman's rendering, the Me Too movement was, in part, founded on a revisionist history of the age-old Hollywood casting couch. Sex in the past that was consensual, although sometimes embarrassing, was now wrongfully reimagined as assault. According to Worksman, women wanted to sleep with his client to gain access to his fame and fortune. Quote, now look at him. He's not Brad Pitt or George Clooney. Do you think those beautiful women had sex with him because he's hot? No, they did it because he was powerful. End quote. The defense attorney asserted that while Jane Doe's one and two fabricated their allegations, Jane Doe's three and four engaged in a consensual relationship with Harvey Weinstein. He told the jury that they will see reams of emails and texts from both women flirting with his client and asking for invitations to parties. As a preview of forthcoming evidence, Worksman displayed two emails sent to Harvey Weinstein on the court TV, one sent by Jane Doe 3 and the other sent by Jane Doe 4. Both messages ended with XXX, ostensibly meaning kiss, kiss, kiss. Worksman raised his eyebrows and remarked, quote, that's hardly the kind of communication you'd send to your rapist, end quote. Worksman explained to the panelists that Jane Doe III was a masseuse with a consensual arrangement with Weinstein. In the defense narrative, the woman allowed Weinstein to grope her and masturbate in front of her in exchange for a book deal and invitations to parties. Worksman asserted that Jane Doe IV, Jennifer Seibel Newsom, also engaged in a sexual relationship with Weinstein in order to advance her career. The defense counsel insinuated that Seibel Newsom's allegations against Weinstein were crafted to raise her public profile. Quote, she's made herself a prominent victim in the Me Too movement. Otherwise, she'd be just another bimbo who slept with Harvey Weinstein to get ahead in Hollywood. End quote. Worksman closed his statements with a discussion of the legal definition of consent. He explained that a defendant is not guilty of rape if at the time he reasonably believed that the victim consented. Worksman stated that the sexual encounters in this case happened in a way in which Weinstein actually or reasonably believed that the women consented at the time and in that moment. Neither the prosecution or the defense mentioned Jane Doe 5, who was named in the indictment. 
Weinstein was charged with two counts of forcible oral copulation and two counts of forcible rape in relation to the woman. At this time, it's unclear if she has officially left the case, and if so, how her absence may affect the charges against Weinstein. The prosecution's first witness was Jane Doe One, an Italian model and talk show host. Her hand shook as she was sworn in by the judicial assistant, and she struggled to breathe when she took the stand. Jane Doe One testified that in February of 2013, she was in Los Angeles for the LA Italia Film Festival as a guest of the festival's producer, Pascal Vicidomini. She testified that she had a brief interaction with Harvey Weinstein at the festival, and when she returned to her hotel after midnight, she got a call from the front desk informing her that Weinstein was there to see her. Jane Doe One declined, but Weinstein still found his way up to her room and pounded on her door. She testified that she was embarrassed by his shouting, so she opened the door and he pushed his way into the room. According to Jane Doe One, she was confused by the producer's arrival, so she attempted to make conversation about her kids. At first, he was friendly, but then his mood suddenly shifted. He pulled her to the bed, held her down, and started to masturbate. The woman recounted that Weinstein had trouble with his erection, so he asked her to suck his balls. She remembered crying and choking. Quote, he was treating me like I'm an object, like a box, like nothing, end quote. Weinstein then dragged Jane Doe One to the bathroom where she alleges he raped her. She testified that as she struggled to get away, he told her, quote, come on, you like it. Tell me you like it, end quote. After Weinstein ejaculated, he left the hotel room. DDA Paul Thompson asked Jane Doe One why she didn't report the assault earlier. She responded, quote, I was afraid of him. I was afraid for my life. I was afraid for my kids, end quote. Alan Jackson cross-examined Jane Doe One with an onslaught of questions seemingly designed to attack her motives and memories. In a line of questions about the woman's career, she testified that acting was more of a hobby for her at the time of the assault because she was financially supported by her husband and busy being a mother and a model. Jackson responded with sarcasm. Quote, so you're the only actress in history since Roman days to not want to be a successful actress? End quote. The question received an objection from the prosecution. Jackson then pivoted to the awkward subject of Weinstein's testicles. The woman's original statement to the police made reference to Weinstein's balls, but she did not mention that specific anatomy in her grand jury testimony. We know from Weinstein's New York trial that he had his testicles removed from his scrotum in a medical procedure prior to the alleged assault. Jackson inquired if Jane Doe One changed her testimony during the grand jury hearing because she learned that the defendant didn't have testicles. She responded that her story did not change. She simply was not asked about the subject at the hearing. Next, Jackson asked Jane Doe One if she had a relationship with the producer of the LA Italia Festival, Pascal Vicidomini. The question gave rise to objections from the prosecution, followed by a sidebar that lasted more than 15 minutes. Ultimately, the defense was allowed to admit a few text messages between Jane Doe One and Vicidomini, including one in which he referred to her as my love. 
Jane Doe One told the defense counsel that Italians call everyone love and that their exchange was not an indication of a romantic relationship. We will cover the remainder of Jane Doe One's cross-examination and redirect examination in our next episode. Okay, joining me now for a discussion of their trial reports are jury duty correspondents Molly Miller and Brittany Bookbinder. Molly, Brittany, welcome back. Hey, Carrie, good to be back. Thanks, Carrie. I'd like to start by asking you both about the respective juries in these cases and specifically how the defense in each trial is framing the narrative. The Weinstein jury is composed of nine men and three women, whereas the Masterson jury is five men and seven women. And Weinstein's defense team seems to be framing the trial as a referendum on the excesses of the Me Too movement, whereas Masterson's team seems to be setting up the charges by the three Jane Doe's as a coordinated vendetta against the Church of Scientology. Molly, let's start with you. Based on the defense opening statement, do you see a connection between the gender split of the Weinstein jury and the defense strategy in the case? I definitely see a connection. It appears as though Worksman is attempting to go for possibly a hung jury in this case, in my opinion. His speech is quite alienating and sexist and misogynist by a lot of people's accounts, by mine, certainly. And the openings, at least, it seemed like he was putting on a show specifically for the men on the jury, hoping that at least one of them would sympathize with his client. So as you said, he's placed a lot of blame on the Me Too movement. We have this quote. He said, an asteroid called the Me Too movement hit Earth with such ferocity that everything changed overnight. And Mr. Weinstein became the epicenter of the Me Too movement. And then later on, he went on to say that Weinstein was turned into a, quote, Hollywood Chernobyl by the movement. So he's casting his client as the victim in chief of the entire Me Too movement and seems to hope that one of the men on the jury also thinks Me Too went too far. I mean, there are some obvious dangers in that strategy. What are you able to glean from the way that the jurors are responding, if they're responding at all, to these statements and these strategies? The jury has not been very expressive, but they have had to wear masks the past few days. So that means it's quite hard, actually, to see what their expressions are. Like you said, it's a massive risk. It's a risk that the jury is going to think that he's a misogynist prick. I mean, some of the things that he's saying are truly shocking. I think what stuck out most to me was when he was talking about Jane Doe number four, who we know has publicly stated that she is Jennifer Seibel Newsom, Gavin Newsom's wife. And of Jane Doe number four, Worksman said, quote, she made herself a prominent victim in the Me Too movement. Otherwise, she'd just be another bimbo who slept with Harvey Weinstein to get ahead in Hollywood. And so language like that, it's hard for that not to be potentially offensive to a lot of the jury, specifically those three women. Brittany, based on the gender split of the Masterson jury and on the opening statement by the defense, Me Too seems to be a much less important part of that case. What would you say appears to be the driving strategy of the Masterson team? Well, I think their main strategy is to try to discredit the witnesses. It seems that Philip Cohn's main strategy here is to downplay Scientology as much as possible. Certainly, it's coming in in witness testimony as much as the witnesses have been admonished by the court and by the prosecution not to go into certain elements of Scientology that 
has been ruled as irrelevant to this case, but it does come in. I think Cohen is trying to point the jury and point the witnesses in testimony to just focusing on the charges. And so the strategy for discrediting these women, he's going about it in a number of ways. For one, he's trying to suggest that they've been in contact, that they've, quote, contaminated their case, that they've discredited themselves, that their communication has been, quote, fatal to this case. And those quotes, he says, are going to be from a detective who warned the women not to be in touch, and they were. So I guess we'll see how that detective testifies when she comes in. And another thing that he's doing is he said during the openings that there is no evidence outside of their stories, no medical evidence, no phone records, no voicemails, no photographic evidence. And, you know, in some cases, there are photographs and, you know, we'll see how that evidence plays on the jury. And I think when it comes to impeaching their statements that they've made to discredit them in that way, I don't know how effective it's going to be. And I don't know exactly how it's playing with the jury. It seems like for the most part, the changes in their statements have been over very minor details, details that have less to do with the actual sexual assaults and more to do with memories of incidental elements that don't really factor into whether or not an assault occurred. But he's trying to sort of impeach their memories more generally. And, you know, as far as I can see, the jury appears to be taking everything seriously. Some people are taking notes, some people aren't. So I think it has yet to be seen how this will play with them. Well, this is a good segue into a conversation about the early witnesses. Molly, what was your take on the overall impact of Jane Doe number one's testimony on direct examination? And then what was your sense of the effectiveness of the defense cross-examination of her? So uh, Jane Doe number one was a really impactful witness for the prosecution. You have to remember that the defense has already set out in opening statements saying that Jane Doe number one and Jane Doe number two, their alleged incidents never happened. So this isn't even a case they're arguing of this was consensual. It's just these incidents did not happen. And so for Jane Doe number one to get up on the stand and to be as visible visibly emotional and shaking and crying as she was, I think the jury seemed to respond to that and to be concerned and a bit sympathetic towards her, at least from their facial expressions. And I think that that makes it really hard to argue from the defense's perspective that this never happened at all. So her testimony was painful as any sexual assault testimony is because she had to give such specific details about the ways in which Weinstein touched her, the ways in which he made her feel like an object. She said at one point, he regarded me like a box. He treated me like I wasn't human. And so that was very powerful from the prosecution's perspective. And I think she did a wonderful job of laying out the chronology of sexual acts that took place on the night that Weinstein allegedly raped and sexually assaulted her. The defense then got up and really it seemed like they wanted to establish that Jane Doe number one wasn't actually even in her hotel that evening. They wanted to suggest that she was having a romantic relationship with the producer of the L.A. Italia Film Festival and that she was actually at his hotel that evening. 
Now, there was an extended sidebar. It was clear that the defense wanted to bring in lots of text messages. Now, obviously, the sidebar. So we don't really know what was going on in that discussion. And ultimately, after an extended sidebar, after we broke very early for lunch and returned, they were only able to admit one message between the L.A. Italia producer and Jane Doe number one. And in it, essentially, he called her my love. And she said she was excited to see him and that she had a surprise waiting for him. So there was this massive buildup in anticipation among the journalists. And I would expect the jury that really there was going to be a profound revelation coming from the defense that afternoon. And it was a letdown. And I think left everybody with the feeling that, or at least left me with the feeling that perhaps there wasn't much evidence actually to substantiate the defense's argument there. Brittany, you've had the opportunity to review not only the testimony of Jane Doe number one in the Masterson trial, but also the testimonies of some of the witnesses called by the state to support Jane Doe number one's allegations. What is your sense of the impact of these testimonies? And specifically, how effective do you think the defense has been in blunting that impact? Absolutely. Well, there was sort of an interesting development after Jane Doe number one testified. So Jane Doe number one, I think, is a somewhat problematic witness for the people. She had a style of speaking that involved mumbling, repeating herself, and just a few other ticks that in some cases made it seem like maybe she wasn't remembering everything perfectly, even though her story was largely consistent. There were many cases where she would insert more information than was being asked of her or not answering quite the question that was being asked. And so by the end of cross-examination, there were several problems, I think, for the prosecution, notably with the photographs. As we've covered in the last couple episodes, there are these photographs from the trip to Florida that were taken about five days after the alleged assault. And we know this because the photographs are time-stamped. It's one of those early 2000s cameras. And because of that style of camera, the subject is brightly in focus and the background is pretty dark. So it certainly is possible that with the Flash, we weren't seeing a completely accurate portrayal of what the people in these photos looked like compared to what you would expect from a photo on, say, an iPhone. But it wasn't immediately clear that the bruising she was describing was visible, at least from the back of the gallery where I was sitting. Now, the other day, we heard from two witnesses who both were people in Jane Doe 1's life that she had reported the incident to in the days following the initial assault back in 2000. So the first witness that we heard from after Jane Doe number one was named Sean Fabos, and he is somebody who was a Scientologist and worked for her parents. And she, at the time, was very close friends with him, and he had a very animated reaction to hearing about this alleged assault. He apparently threatened to beat up or maybe even kill Masterson for having done this to her. And yet, when he took the stand, he didn't remember a lot of the details that 
he said that she told him at the time he was being very cagey, so much so that Judge Olmedo ruled that he was an adverse witness. And then it came out that actually he developed even stronger ties to Scientology in the last couple of years, and that he was claiming now to have suddenly remembered that he himself was on this trip. And even though he didn't spend a lot of time with Jane Doe number one, that he didn't witness himself any bruising on her body. The very next witness that the state called was her cousin Rachel, who was on this trip. She said, and I think this was probably the biggest win for the prosecution so far in rehabilitating the testimony of Jane Doe number one, which was looking at these photographs, one of which she was in and the other one that the cousin took. She said that actually in person, the bruising was a lot more visible and it wasn't showing up on camera the way that it looked in person. So that I think really helped the prosecution. She also said that to her memory, Sean Fabos was not on this trip. And one other thing that came up during Jane Doe number one's testimony was she was presented with a number of statements that she had made to the initial officer that she reported to when she stopped into an LAPD police department office. And this is Officer Schlegel. And she implied that he maybe didn't find her credible, that he called her crazy at one point. She did not seem to believe that the report that he wrote accurately reflected everything he said. And just a preview of what's to come, we'll get into this more next time, but we're recording this on Thursday. And today, Officer Schlegel began testifying. And it seemed that for the most part, his report was very consistent with her testimony. And he did not seem to have a great memory of a lot of the details outside of just reading verbatim from his report. So, so far, it seems like he is lending credibility to her version of events. Well, those are really great and comprehensive insights into both of these trials at this early stage. Molly, I gather that there was a bit of drama with the bailiff and the Weinstein trial. Could you fill us in on that? You bet. So uh, being in the Weinstein courtroom right now does feel like we're in elementary school and at any point in time we could be sent to the principal's office. There are about anywhere between 10 to 20 journalists in the courtroom every single day. And these are journalists from TikTokers to journalists from the New York Times or the London Times. And first of all, I have to say we've all bonded quite a bit over this experience. The bailiff has really a zero tolerance policy for any kind of talking or looking at phones. On the very first day, a veteran reporter who is kind of a favorite among the group just didn't even check her phone. She simply adjusted it in her bag. And the bailiff threw her out of the courtroom and she wasn't allowed to come back inside until the afternoon, which is a massive problem for a veteran journalist who's trying to cover a story. So there has been a lot of fear in the journalists who are sitting in the back aisle. Everyone's scared that they're going to get kicked out. If you whisper, even while court isn't in session, to anyone next to you, you will get called out. It's not quite screaming. I wouldn't say the bailiff is screaming, but it's a very loud, firm tone. And it does. It feels like we're being chastised. It is a very kind of oppressive atmosphere. But like I said, it's bringing us all closer. So we're happy for that, I guess. Wow. That sounds like a courtroom thick with tension. Brittany, what's the general vibe in Judge Charlene Almeida's courtroom for the Masterson trial? 
I would say it's quite different. If the Weinstein courtroom is like an elementary school classroom, ours is sort of like high school detention. First of all, almost no one is wearing a mask. The judge isn't requiring it, and only several jurors have consistently been wearing masks, and some of the journalists, but none of the lawyers, and just about nobody in the gallery. It's just a lot more calm, I think, for the most part. The judge has decided to separate out the people who are there in support of Danny Masterson. They sit on one side of the gallery, and allegedly everybody who's just the public is sitting on the other side, although according to Tony Ortega from the Underground Bunker, it sounds like there might be some Scientology plants coming in and potentially watching from the sidelines. One very interesting thing that happened today was there was a man who I believe is an attorney who may have previously worked or is currently working alongside Cohen in some capacity. He is sat in the courtroom a couple of times. He's been out in the hallway. Today, he was sitting in the front row of the gallery next to somebody else. And Judge Olmedo asked him to stop talking and to not gesture at the witness. She sent the jury out of the room specifically so she could tell him not to do that. And she reminded everybody in the gallery to keep a poker face. And later on, he was talking again. And she put his name on the record and said, I'm going to ask you to refrain from continually talking. Court is in session and you can't do that. So she's keeping, you know, a tight rein on things. She seems to be very much aware of what's going on in the courtroom. But overall, there's a lot that feels unpleasant simply about listening to this testimony that I'm very grateful that the vibe in the room isn't quite as oppressive as in the Weinstein room. Brittany Molly, thanks again for these fascinating insights. And as always, we look forward to your next round of reports. Thanks so much, Carrie. Absolutely. We'll see you next time. And with that, we conclude this episode of Jury Duty, The Trials of Weinstein and Masterson. Join us on our next installment as we hear more from Molly and Brittany about the early witness testimonies in both of these sexual assault trials. Also, if you would like to listen to these episodes early and ad-free, head over to our Jury Duty Crime Story Patreon page. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. You can find more information about these trials on our Jury Duty Crime Story Patreon page or at crimestory.com. Jury Duty is created and produced by yours truly, Carrie Antholis. It was reported and written by Molly Miller and Brittany Bookbinder. It was co-produced and edited by Chris Taracone. Music for this episode was provided by Strike Audio. Thank you for joining us, and we hope you will come back for the next episode of Jury Duty, The Trials of Weinstein and Masterson.